Welcome everyone to a special podcast episode brought to you by the ATS Critical Care Assembly. My name is Matt Stutz and I'm an apprentice member of the ATS Critical Care Assembly's web committee. Assembly apprenticeships offer a great way for early career physicians to be involved in ATS. Today we're going to be highlighting some of the top critical care case reports that were presented at the ATS 2022 International Conference. I'm joined today by two co-hosts from the Critical Care Assembly. Molly Hayes is a member of the Critical Care Programming Committee and the chair of the Subcommittee on Education and Critical Care. We're also joined by Dave Ferfaro, a member of the Subcommittee on Critical Care and Education. Hey Matt, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be doing this today and to talk about these great cases. This past year, we had an overwhelming number of case reports programmed at the International Conference. And what's really exciting is that we even had our first case report poster discussion. Today, we are thrilled to highlight four of our top cases. We'll also be highlighting five incredible cases and presenters in a series of tweets. So please follow us at ATS Crit Care. Awesome. Hey, Matt and Molly. It's great. This is Dave. It's great to be doing this podcast with you. I'm very excited to meet all our presenters and hear about these amazing cases. You know, I feel like the conference is always so much fun, but it's just impossible to get to everything. So I love that we get to highlight highlight these cases and talk to the presenters one more time. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to hear from them and hear how they did such a good job and, and how we can do a good job next year. Definitely. Uh, before we meet our presenters, though, I want to talk a little bit about the process of case report submissions. Uh, Dave, can you tell the listeners a little more about it? Yeah, absolutely. So in the fall coming up you know, soon, and we'll keep you posted if you follow us on Twitter, uh, we'll open the submissions for abstracts and case reports. And, and a priority of the Critical Care Assembly has been to maximize the quality of these case reports. So the Subcommittee on Education and Critical Care has been working on this since before my time on it and has developed a standardized scoring rubric. Uh, Molly, I know that you this was sort of your brainchild. So can you walk us through how the case reports are evaluated uh, after they're submitted and, and what criteria everyone should know about? Yeah, happy to. Thanks, Dave. So just as you said, we recently created a scoring rubric. So all of the case report abstracts are actually scored on a scale of one, three, or five. One is our outstanding category, and a group of us got together to really think about what makes a case report outstanding. So a few little pearls I'll share with you about an outstanding case report. This is a case report that's extremely well-written and clear and concise. And most importantly, it's a case report that has a lot of good learning points. And these learning points are kind of highlighted in the case report so that will benefit all of critical care community. Sometimes you might just say, this was a cool case, I want to write it up, but it doesn't really have clear learning points. So that's what a one is. A one is a really outstanding case that has learning points that all of us can benefit from. And myself, as someone who reads these and score these, I learned a ton reading all these great cases this year. Our three category is sort of our good, sort of in the middle case. And it's like a little bit less well-developed, maybe learning points that are there, but could be developed a little bit more. Um, but it's still good enough and still something that we can all learn from. And then five is our poor category. So these case reports are usually not accepted. And luckily, we have such great case reports every year, we hardly have any fives. But a five is a case report that's poorly written. It's not really well developed. There's not a really clear rationale or learning points presented throughout the case. Um, but as I said, we're really lucky we had tons of ones, tons of outstanding cases, and I'm so excited to highlight some of them now. Awesome. That's really helpful for everyone to know as we're all uh, gearing up for ATS 2023 and preparing our case reports. Uh, 
Um, so let's dive into these cases. First up, we have um, Dr. Kristen Nelson-McMillan. Uh, Kristen is Associate Professor of Pediatrics and Pediatric Critical Care at Advocate Children's Hospital and University of Chicago. Welcome, Kristen. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be a part of this really exciting podcast. Awesome. Well, tell us about your presentation about the use of perfluorocarbon for pediatric pulmonary hemorrhage. Thanks, Matt. We presented three patients on mechanical cardiac support that included ECMO or ventricular assist device therapy with pulmonary hypertension who developed pulmonary hemorrhage. This pulmonary hemorrhage resulted in diffuse alveolar bleeding and ultimately airway, airway thrombi extending well beyond the proximal airways. All of the patients had failed traditional clearance maneuvers, which we had attempted initially that included recurrent bronchoscopy and various nebulizer therapies. All of these patients also required systemic anticoagulation for the entirety of their mechanical circuitry support runs. We then utilized perfluorocarbon, or PFC, um, also commonly known as liquid ventilation. Specifically, we used perfluorodeclin lavage, and 5 to 10 cc's per kilo we used per treatment to facilitate airway clearance and lung recruitment. I'm going to briefly talk about the three patients that we presented in this case series to really highlight the young age of these patients. Patient one was seven years old, and she developed pulmonary hemorrhage due to inhalation of lung injury from a house fire and pneumonia requiring VA ECMO. She required three PFC, I'm sorry, nine PFC treatments, along with four concurrent intrapulmonary administrations of activated factor seven. The reason we utilize activated factor seven in these cases is because we needed to stop the bleeding, form clot, and then use the PFC to actually buoy up um, really lift up the um, clot formation that occurred re related to the bleeding. That allowed for clearance of her large airways, initiation um, of the restoration of her native lung gas exchange, and no recurrence of pulmonary hemorrhage following the nine treatments. She was ultimately transitioned to a right ventricular assist device and ultimately decannulated with heart and lung recovery after several months. The second patient we presented was only three months old with pulmonary hemorrhage related to severe pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure associated with congenital heart disease, and she required a right ventricular assist device. She developed recurrent pulmonary hemorrhage while on the right ventricular assist device, and she received 15 PFC treatments, and eight of those were also um, concomitant activated factor seven administrations. Significant improvement in her native lung gas exchange, lung inflation, and right heart recovery allowed for decannulation a few months later. The third patient we presented in this case series was four months old with a pulmonary hemorrhage due to a disrupted mitral valve leaflet resulting in severe left atrial hypertension requiring VA ECMO. After 10 days on ECMO without improvement, we gave him two PFC treatments. This also subsequently led to recovery of his lung function and decannulation from VA ECMO three days later. So these, the case series we presented um, at ATS were these three patients that have obviously varying diagnoses, but all had the end problem of recurrent pulmonary hemorrhage, small lung fields um, to be able to get access to the more distal airways, and the use of PFC and sometimes activated factor seven to be able to result in lung recovery and ultimately decannulation from mechanical circuitry support. Kristen, that is so interesting. So is the PFC itself do anything to stop the hemorrhage or is it just a really yeah, helpful tool for clear? Oh, it does. Cool. In really, it's almost like a coating. You know, it's like an oil. Yeah. So like it stops it just from bleeding. So I have done um, two patients now not on mechanical circuitry support just intubated that had systemically anticoagulated, get a bleed because they, you know, you're 
endotracheal tube suctioning. And our kids are like very small. <laughs> we don't have like access to cryotherapy or, you know, getting down to deeper segments. Like we're really limited with a lot of these patients. It really coats wow. it and they stop bleeding. That's awesome. I got to look into see the literature in adults. I'm curious now. I was just going to say the same thing, Dave. That's so cool. We should look at this for adults. Yeah. I actually trained med peds and like seeing the different strategies on different, uh, you know, between medicine and pediatrics, you're just like, wow, why don't we do it that way on the other side? Yeah. <laughs> like a That's great, great example. Um, well, do you have any images to share from those cases? I do. And briefly, I'll just um, say that the chest x-rays, I give you one example of chest x-rays. And if you look at the first x-ray, you see it's very opaque. And a lot of that opaqueness is due to the pulmonary hemorrhage. And then you'll see a little bit more opaqueness that's related to the PFC administration. And then in the course of over a few days to a few weeks, this particular patient, if you see the middle panel, um, we still see some opacity in the right upper low because that area was what kept um, having recurrent bleeding. So we tried to concentrate administration of PFC and factor seven to that right upper lobe. And then ultimately, um, this is over a three-week period of time, the lungs um, had significant recovery. And of of course, native um, gas exchange and lung inflation improving as well, allowing you to wean from mechanical circuitry support. Wow. I had no idea about the utility of perfluorocarbon. What are the main points we should take away from your presentation? Um, thanks. So perfluorocarbons have been around for a long time and originally studied, you know, in adult ARDS and there's been many animal studies. And now in pediatrics, we're, we're seeing a comeback of sorts um, and it's being studied in pediatric lung disease. And in particular, it's being studied in congenital diaphragmatic hernia, where you basically have a hypoplastic lung field. And can you start to maybe uh, help inflate that lung and lead to improvement? Um, in addition to, to the utility um, that I used in this case series. So not only has it, can it be a favorable respiratory media for gas exchange, one of the important aspects in our case series is that the density of a blood clot, of a human blood clot, is uh, actually slightly higher than saline. So it can be difficult to use saline to effectively remove clotted blood from an airway, especially when you're talking about a distal airway or alveoli. And in pediatrics in particular, recurrent high-volume saline may ultimately lead to some surfactant deficiency. And PFC is actually more dense than a human clot. And in these cases, it uh, really allowed for removal of clot with that buoy effect and cessation of bleeding. So just applying um, that to mucosa um, helped decrease uh, bleeding in these uh, patients. So in cases, um, especially in pediatric patients, where there's not really equipment to be able to gain access to more distal airways or other equipment that might help us um, with uh, decreasing bleeding um, or clotting, PFC may be beneficial and allow um, for recovery of lung lung function. Um, We've now actually uh, used this modality in seven um, patients thus far. That's awesome. This is so interesting. And I'm sure you've heard it multiple times from the conference to now, but it's really fascinating. Thank you for sharing it. All right. Well, next we have Marcelo Zapata Canavillo. Marcelo is a clinical research fellow in critical care medicine and works at the Thrombosis and Atherosclerosis Research Institute at McMaster University in Ontario, Canada. Thanks for coming on the show today, Marcelo. Oh, thanks, Dr. Forfaro. It's an honor uh, for me to be here, and uh, especially because it's, it's my first time in a podcast. <laughs> ah, yes. Well, welcome. Hope first and hopefully not last. <laughs> oh, uh, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the case that you submitted and ultimately presented at ATS was entitled Plastic Bronchitis After Minimally Invasive Mitral Valve Replacement 
an unusual etiology of acute respiratory failure after cardiac surgery, which I can tell you, it got me hooked. <laughs> so uh, yeah. can, can you tell the listeners about the case? Oh, yeah, for sure. So this case is uh, about a 65-year-old Caucasian woman who presented to the hospital for an elective minimally invasive mitral valve replacement. This procedure was performed uh, via right mini thoracotomy with peripheral cannulation through the femoral right artery and the vein for cardiopulmonary bypass. Um, the transthoracic aortic cross clamp was applied and anterior cardioplegia was given. The procedure uh, consisted on the closure of a persistent foraminal valve, and uh, subsequently, the mitral valve was replaced with a porcine mitral valve prosthesis, preserving a posterior lifid. They used a number 31 Senute Epic tissue mitral valve prosthesis, and the procedure was described as usual. There were no special issues with the surgery, no bleeding, no um, cardiovascular instability. So she was weaned off the cardiopulmonary bypass without any difficulty. The post-pump TEE showed a well-functioning mitral prosthesis, preserved left ventricle function, no residual interatrial septum defect, and no paravalvular leak with a normal gradient as well. The total uh, time on pump was 120 minutes, and the cross-clamp time was 95 minutes. Two drains were inserted, one to the pericardium and the other one to the right pleura, and after that, the, patients were, the patient was transferred to the ICU uh, for uh, post-operative care on stable, stable conditions, under sedation, intubated, and on the mechanical ventilator without any issues reported during the transport to the ICU. Of note, she was on atrial fibrillation, um, but that was well-tolerated. And... Um, after two hours from her admission, she presented with sudden development of hypoxemia. And uh, that was asso associated with high peak pressures on the ventilator, uh, high mean pressures as well, with the normal uh, plateau pressures, and the presence of thick and bloody bronchial casts that were coming off her ETT. A chest X-ray demonstrated that there were new right-sided infiltrates, and uh, as the episode did not resolve with aspiration of the secretions, we performed an emergent flexible bronchoscopy. This procedure demonstrated the presence of plugs and bronchial casts that were coming uh, predominantly from the right lower lobe. Hmm. At that point, um, she was still on 100% of FIU2, we were not sure about what was going on. I have to say that I'm from Chile, and years ago I, I had the chance to see one case of, of plastic bronchitis, and the images of the casts that we pulled out from this patient were very similar to, to that previous episode. So Wow, it's we, great that you had the experience. You already kind of knew maybe what you were looking at. Um, I mean, it, it could have been like... I don't know, um, like clots or something else. Right. It's just the, the, the consistency of, of this cats were, was so thick that it was almost like that case that I've seen before. <laughs> so at that point, um, as we were not sure about what was going on and we were not sure about the etiology of, of this um, episode, uh, we decided to keep her ventilated. The oxygen requirements were um, coming slowly down over the night. 
We uh, did a CT uh, chest, which revealed like a right-sided consolidation and a minimal pneumothorax after the surgery. And the patient required at least two or three uh, new bronchoscopies because of these casts. After all, the patient was extubated uh, day fourth after surgery, and she was discharged home finally uh, a week after the episode. We were able to, to track the patient after that episode, and she was doing fine. Her PFTs were normal. So it was a really interesting case. Fortunately, we were able to, to do the bronchoscopy right, right away, uh, so we were able to ventilate her again. And uh, with that, everything uh, was a, a bit more easier for us. Oh, yeah, sure. That's a great case. And I th- feel like you describe it well that, you know, m- you're making decisions quickly in the ICU, but you also laid out the great physiology that her peak pressures were up, but her plateaus were the same. So you knew there was something airway that you had to get to and you bronched right yes. away. That's great. Yes. And and that, that's uh, that's something um, that was really um, useful for me because, you know, what well, th- there is this... Um, this chapter in the in in, in Marina's uh, ICU book yeah. like, w- that everybody else have have written so so far, yeah. and uh, there's this algorithm about uh, what to do when when you have like this kind of uh, ventilator emergencies, right? Like when you have a high peak pressure with uh, uh, in, with an increased resistance with normal uh, plateau pressures, right? So that should make you think in the moment that there is some kind of obstruction somewhere else in the airway. So, and that's something that I did learn, like, <laughs> I don't know, as the first thing when I started in, in critical care. So I think it's it's very useful. I mean, it's pretty useful to, to have some uh, kind of, of framework uh, in your mind. So, so you uh, can be able to take decisions efficiently, quickly uh, for uh, the patient's benefit. Yeah, back to basics, that's, that's great. Yeah. Uh, and then to, if you can just tell our listeners, you know, that may not know what plastic bronchitis is. So you have these big casts and then they're not just clots, right? Like how it, it yeah. ends up being something else. Yeah. This is a really unfrequent entity. Uh, there mm-hmm. are like uh, 500 cases described so so far in the literature. And uh, there are many descriptions um, about the nature of, of this disease. But the truth is like, there are many theories, but none of them have been demonstrated so far. Things that we know is that there are some patterns of some kind of typical patients where this thing have been seen. Like, for example, post-cardiac surgery uh, in pediatric congenital cases. So in this case, we don't know the nature of this. What we know is that the pathology was uh, concordant with our um, clinical suspicion. So your pictures are amazing from your case, and we will post these online. Can you just uh, tell our listeners what to look out for? I'm looking at a couple amazing photos. All right. So the the first uh, with the letter A uh, is the chest X-ray that we got just after um, the patient started to to have issues with the uh, airway pressures and the oxygenation. The second picture is one that we uh, took from the uh, Glidescope monitor, mm-hmm. um, where we, I mean, it was like the first image that we saw. So you can see that to the um, right main uh, carina, you, you can see that there is something coming out there that seems to be uh, like a chunk of meat, right? 
yeah. which is different from, from, from a cloud. And, it, and, and the thickness of this was really, really remarkable. Panel numbers, uh, letter C, you can see like it looks like a, like a tree. Right. Yeah. yeah. Able to, oh, yeah. You put or it a like sea snake. <laughs> yeah. And finally, number the, the letter D uh, shows uh, the, the the city chest that show this right sided um, consolidation and this tiny pneumothorax that was drained and it was no not an issue. Perfect. Fantastic. I will. We will post these, and I encourage everyone to check out, especially B and C, of what this looks like from the bronchoscopic perspective. And after you guys sucked it out, and then. Hey, Marcel, if you could just tell us one or two key learning points that you took away from this case. Yeah. So uh, for me, I would say like, and as I, as I said before, there are some patterns when, when there are some issues on a ventilated patient, especially when there is some obstruction along the airway. So for me, uh, it was pretty useful to have always in mind that when there is an increased peak pressure, with an increased resistance with normal plateaus, there should be an issue somewhere else in the airway. So that's the first thing. It, it's something that may sound like pretty basic, but it's something that may help you to put yourself together and not start running in circles when you have this kind of emergencies, right? The second thing is that um, when there is some uncertainty regarding the uh, etiology of what's going on, there is also nothing you can treat right there is no specific treatment for nothing so uh in that case i would say that what i've learned from this case is that sometimes the better for the patient is just to do nothing and observe uh the patient and and see what's going on and that's what we did at some point we didn't know that it was in a specific um uh, plastic bronchitis so we decided to keep her ventilated and it resulted in the patient needing further bronchoscopies over the, 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 the next two days. So that was a good decision. That's great. Great tips. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your case. Next up, we have Aisha Tandon. Aisha is a pulmonary and critical care fellow at University of Arizona in Phoenix. Uh, thanks for, so much for coming on. Thank you for the introduction and the honor to be a part of the podcast. I'm so excited to be joining you all today. Yeah, absolutely. We're excited too. So your submission was called CYB5R deficiency causing methemoglobinemia, looking beyond COVID-19 in the hypoxic Navajo patient, which is just a very capturing title. Uh, so if you could, could you just tell us a little bit about the case? Yeah, sure. So we presented a case of a 34-year-old Navajo woman. She was at 34 weeks gestation presenting with dyspnea. She was found to be a hypoxic to low 80s on room air, requiring three to four liters of oxygen via nasal cannula. She tested positive for COVID-19, but her imaging, including a CT scan of her chest, was overall unrevealing, except for bibasal atelectasis. With high concern for developing fetal compromise in the setting of COVID-19 pneumonia, therapy with steroids and anticoagulation was initiated, but her oxygen saturations remained 85% despite escalating supplemental O2. So given the discordance between her oxygen saturation readings and the lack of findings on her CT scan, a cooximetry was then performed, revealing a met hemoglobin level of 12.3%. And follow-up testing confirmed a low cytochrome B5 reductase level at less than 2.6 units per gram of hemoglobin, confirming congenital met hemoglobinemia. 
In addition, history taking revealed that she took nitrofurantoin a week prior to admission for a UTI, increasing her risk of developing methemoglobinemia. Individuals with congenital methemoglobinemia are likely to have greater susceptibility to acquired methemoglobinemia when exposed to a fending agent. Her symptoms improved over the next three days with about five to six liters of oxygen delivery via nasal cannula, and other therapies were discontinued. She did not require methylene blue or ascorbic acid. So this case was a great chance to review the causes, presentation, and treatment of methemoglobinemia. In particular, the case reviews the role of cytochrome B5 reductase, which reduces methemoglobin from its ferric state, where it cannot transport oxygen, to its ferrous state, where it can. And patients present with symptoms of cyanosis and dyspnea with concentrations between 10 to 20 percent, our patient with the 12 percent, seizures and coma can present when levels are greater than 50 percent, and death is likely to occur when levels are greater than 70 percent. Important to our case, methemoglobinemia can be fatal to both mother and baby during pregnancy at even lower concentrations. Methylene blue is associated with a decrease in mortality in severe cases when initiated early. It was also interesting to discover a higher prevalence of congenital methemoglobinemia in Athabascan natives. Um, studies have shown a disproportionate burden of COVID-19 morbidity in the Navajo population, who make up about 330,000 individuals across the United States. While congenital cytochrome B5 reductase deficiency is rare, it's an important consideration in the Navajo patient whose hypoxia appears to be out of proportion to imaging findings of COVID-19 infection. Wow, that's great. I mean, so many good teaching pearls there, but I, I also feel like even in the basics, just like a hypoxemia workup, we always talk about this mythical uh, hemoglobinopathies or transfer defects, and, and then yeah, not mythical happens a lot, and that's really great. Uh, on that note, uh, there are, again, like so many learning points already, but are there any key ones that you took from the case that has sort of changed your practice and you've sort of carried forward? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially in this acute setting where we had so many, such an increase in Navajo patients in the hospital here in Arizona, um, the first and most important is not to anchor on a diagnosis, but consider all possibilities of what could be putting a subset of patients at higher risk for decompensation. And it's important to investigate further diagnoses when the patient presents with symptoms out of proportion to clinical findings, or there's no improvement despite the usual therapy. An unrecognized genetic factor could lead to rapid and detrimental progression of a disease and or unnecessary delay of treatment. And then second, throughout the U.S., this indigenous population suffered greatly from COVID-19 pandemic, especially again in Arizona. And this was largely attributed to lack of resources to these underserved groups, health education, higher incidence of diabetes, and other cultural preferences. But an additional important factor is to consider any genetic variations in this already at-risk population, such as congenital methemoglobinemia. And it's interesting because due to the displacement of Native American people across the United States during European invasion, tribes underwent potential population bottlenecks that are now reflected in autosomal recessive diseases shared by the Apaches and Navajos, which comprise the Athabascan tribes. Hmm. Evaluation of these genetic variations could provide further insight into disease progression and or therapies for this population and for others. Wow. So interesting. So important to understand the the population you're caring for, everything, their culture, the diseases they're predisposed to, things like that you might not think of. That's great. 
Well, last but uh, certainly not least, we have Grant Turner. Uh, today is July 1st. Grant finished his lung transplant fellowship yesterday. He is now a lung transplant attending at UCLA. So congrats, Grant. Uh, and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so your case uh, report was called Timing of Lung Transplantation for Seemingly Irreversible COVID-19 Lung Disease, A Cautionary Tale, which is a, maybe a slightly practical topic for us in the last couple of years. So if you could please tell us about the case, that'd be great. Of course. Uh, so in my case, we discuss a 29-year-old, otherwise healthy, pregnant female who developed COVID-19 and subsequent severe acute respiratory distress syndrome that required initiation of mechanical ventilation, then VV ECMO, in addition to standard of care management for ARDS and COVID-19 at the time. Um, unfortunately, after several weeks on ECMO at an outside hospital, she had not had any progression. Um, and so she was transferred to our facility for consideration of lung transplant and was found to be an acceptable candidate other than having high levels of sensitization to potential donors. During the desensitization process to try to um, find a potential donor for her, she actually progressively improved over the course of several weeks and was able to be taken off of ECMO, off the ventilator, and was actually discharged 85 days after her um, diagnosis of uh, COVID-19 on nasal cannula. And she continues to follow with our clinic remotely and uh, is on room air over a year later, still fully functional without a lung transplant. So our case really highlights the importance of deciding when a lung transplant is best for patients and the lack of knowledge around the time course of COVID-19, while other cases follow a really predictable timeline of progressive fibrosis um, with or without attempts to stop it with antifibrotics or immunosuppression, COVID, um, once it's resolved, theoretically should not continue to have um, progressive fibrosis. So the decision of who and when to transplant for COVID-19 is really complex, especially since the average lifespan of a patient who undergoes a lung transplant is around six years. That's fascinating. Uh, I'm just curious, was there, I know the desensitization process can be lots of different meds. Was there any thought that that actually helped her recover from the COVID or do you, was it probably think true, true, unrelated? Unclear. Uh, I think it could be true, true, unrelated, but our desensitization involves um, rituximab, um, more high-dose steroids, and um, daratumumab, which is um, a multiple myeloma drug that theoretically reduces the amount of antibodies in um, B cells. And so unlikely that that alone caused her recovery from COVID-19, ARDS, and fibrosis, but is definitely potential. Really interesting. So you had a great poster that you should have to share with everybody. Are there certain images that we should share with our listeners for today? I think the panel that demonstrates how uh, at day 49 after her COVID diagnosis, her lungs were densely consolidated with um, peripheral fibrosis and large bulla um, that required several chest tubes um, in comparison to then um, 229 days after her COVID diagnosis, where there's still one bulla left behind, but the fibrosis has mostly resolved and um, starts to look more like normal lungs is definitely representative of what can happen um, if you allow time for sort of natural um, healing rather than transplant. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, these images. And I think we've all had a couple patients like this where we've just been astounded by the recovery. So I'm sure you've learned a lot from this case. What are a few takeaway points that our listeners should uh, should take from it? 
First, uh, the decision to undergo lung transplantation really requires careful thought about the risks and benefits on an individual level and ensuring there are no other options for a patient, since it does start that sort of time clock of an av- shortening a lifespan potentially. And then second, the continued need for research regarding lung transplantation for COVID, not just in the acute setting of ARDS um, of patients on ECMO that have no other options, um, but also for the waves of patients who may be coming soon that have post-COVID fibrosis months to years later, since so many patients have been affected. Well, those were incredible cases, and thanks to all of you for sharing these important lessons. We talked at the beginning of this about the rubric, and clearly all of you went above and beyond and were were in that one sort of outstanding category. So thanks so much for all your hard work. I'm wondering before we end if you guys could share some tips for our listeners so how they can put together a good case report for next year. Maybe some tips on how to even think about selecting a case, how to put the case together, how you interacted with your mentors, really anything you want to share. I really appreciate the highlight of cases, as in this podcast, um, showing that even a few patient cases can be impactful to the medical community. Especially for me, as I work in pediatrics, case reports may allow others to try a modality that hasn't been tried before and ultimately lead to multi-center collaborations. I, I really think, you know, getting together with your team and showing something that is unique or different and how it might help others I think is really important and really appreciate you um, showing the importance of case reports in this podcast. Thanks, Kristen. How about Grant? Do you have any tips that you want to pass along? Yeah, and I agree with Kristen. Um, While not as small as pediatrics, lung transplant is definitely a more rare condition um, and a smaller community. And so being able to present case reports really moves the science along in areas and allows um, individuals to talk to each other about similar cases they may have had. I would really encourage any trainee that no case is too small to consider, especially if there are helpful learning points on a condition not commonly identified or something that's relatively new like COVID-19. I would seek out your mentor and seek out other mentors in the department and discuss submitting. Usually people are excited to help with case reports. Um, I think something that I often have to remind myself is that deadlines um, mean that you have to give people time ahead of the deadline to consider and give you, you know, helpful feedback rather than giving it to them a day or two ahead of time, which I have personally been guilty of. Uh, So making sure to give yourself and your mentors plenty of time to review the abstract before submission so that it can be the best it possibly can be. Hopefully get a one on the the grading process. I think we've all been guilty of that for sure. So no worries. And thanks really for highlighting the learning points piece of that. That's such a crucial part that, you know, we really want these case reports to have good learning uh, points so that we can all as a critical care community benefit from what each other is going through. So thanks so much. So what about you, Marcella? Any tips for our listeners about how to make a great case report? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's very important to, to have, a team and to have uh, always a, a person that can be your mentor. And in this case, um, I, I have to uh, acknowledge that my boss, Dr. Fox Robbie Chaud and Dr. Emily Velicote, um were two uh, of the uh, mentors that um, helped me a lot on, on writing this case. So a good team, good mentors. And also, um, you can 
I don't know, try to uh, make this kind of focus group with, with your peers to see if there's anything special on what you you found in, in that patient. Absolutely. Uh, so next, uh, Aisha, do you have any tips for our listeners about how they can make a great case report and bring it to the next conference? Yes, definitely. I think it is really helpful first to remember that any case, big or small, can be a great learning opportunity. So I encourage people not to hesitate writing something up if they find it interesting, especially if it's in their area of interest. And share your basic raw draft with your peers as well as your mentors really early on, especially if they were involved in the case. Create a Google document and go back and forth with edits because adjustments with word limits can be really tricky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you all so much, Aisha, Kristen, Grant, Marcello. Thank you all for coming on, sharing your cases. Uh, you did an amazing job, and it was a pleasure to highlight your work. And we'll see you next year at ATS. Thanks for listening, everyone. Make sure to follow the Critical Care Assembly on Twitter to see even more great grace presentations and get updates about submissions for ATS 2023. Thanks, everyone. See you in D.C.